Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson and I'm the editor of the BJGP. Joining me today are two GPs and associate editors of the BJGP, Sam Muriel and Tom Round. So we're going for a nice relaxed episode today and we're going to talk about the April issue of the journal and we want to flag some particular highlights that have stuck out for us and we're going to have a bit of a discussion around them as well. So the cover theme for this month was respiratory health, but as always, the theme in the BJGP only makes up a small proportion of the articles and we're going to cover, um, and we cover lots of other areas as well, and we'll talk a little bit about them today too. So the first thing is to say hello to Sam and Tom. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi, Aaron. So um, I might just kick us off if that's okay. So I was going to mention a couple of editorials initially. Um, and uh, the first one I wanted to mention was, um, of course, Trish Greenhouse is editorial um, alongside, I say Trish and um, also uh, Rebecca Rosen as well. Uh, they're the Greenhouse and Rosen editorial, which was remote by default, which was kind of, now Trish has obviously done incredible work through the pandemic on all sorts of areas, but particularly on remote consultations and it's been um it probably is the number one topic in terms of uh you know the research the new research that we're seeing coming into the journal the articles that we're getting about it and the topic of conversation over these past 12 months in the response to the pandemic and um trish and rebecca have written a really nice editorial which covers some of the uh, you know the concerns and the the decisions and the way things are going to look going forward we know the college have been involved in this talking about it and there've been articles in the media you know worrying about gps saying they don't want to be a call center gp so it could, perhaps couldn't be any more pertinent the remote consultations um model what's um i'll go to you first tom maybe you know you've got some feelings on this what's how do you think things are going to end up in terms of remote consultations well, yeah so obviously lots in the media lots in the press lots of discussion um about this i mean if we, if we look at the stats so more than half of consultations from nature's digital are still face to face so you know it, it's it, but like, certainly with the pandemic, we're, we, we, you know, we, it's important to triage and not have full waiting rooms and, and use technology. Uh, I'm quite, I mean, I've been a GP for 10 years, so I know quite a lot of my patients and actually using the phone, I find really useful. And actually to have my clinic where I don't have a treadmill of 10 minute appointments and I can have the flexibility a bit more with this sort of uh, new way of working. I find that a positive, though we've had trainees in our practice and that's really difficult. Yeah, it's certainly a lot more difficult for them um, coming in and, have, and doing sort of phone call fa- uh, and bringing in face-to-face and having less of that face-to-face contact. So I think it's really that getting that balance right uh, and making sure we don't lose the continuity, the relationship-based care, and also trying to avoid uh, digital exclusion. Because certainly, you know, using these apps and video and 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 uh, the AccuRx and text messaging function is all very, very good and it works for people like us who are digital and tech savvy and improve, potentially improves access but do we do that at the detriment of some of our more excluded populations yeah sam what are your thoughts yeah no i, I think i along the similar lines to tom I, I think it's clear from the research evidence that there are certain things that we deal with quite commonly in primary care like medication queries and some of the mental health things we deal with that can quite easily um, be done remotely and are satisfactory for both patients and clinicians. There's other things that we do in our in bread and butter work in primary care that really need that face-to-face contact. And, and Tom mentioned Tom's mentioned continuity and obviously the sort of more complex patients we have and multi-morbid patients. I think from a you know, personal clinical experience, we've certainly had situations where there is no substitute for clapping your eyes on some of these patients that we're dealing with remotely, you know, and and people get a few phone calls and then you bring them in and you go, oh, actually, I can see what's going on here or actually you look quite ill. We need to 
to act faster. So I think, you know, it'll probably work itself out in time and, you know, and GPs will adapt and, and set up models to suit their local populations. And, and, you know, there will definitely be a mix of remote and face-to-face consulting, but I think we just need to find the right balance and the right setup for our practices and our patients. No doubt it's given it a, you know, it's, it's turbocharged the kind of remote consultation model. But I, I think we were saying just before we started that it's going to find its level to some extent. We're clearly not going to continue um, at the kind of the all remote or nearly all remote, though, as Tom says, they're 50% face to face anyway. The significant that I would imagine that's going to dwindle that chunk over time. But um, I think it will find its level and we'll, as I say, we just need to pay particular attention to the groups that are disadvantaged perhaps more than anything by remote consultation. I, I like the quote in the, in the paper, general practice is messy, complex and characterised by anomalies and exceptions. Totally agree with that. And I think it's very much, you know, striking that balance between the individual patient, you as a practitioner and, and, the, and the, how the practice and the policy parts of it. So a really nice little diagram in that, um, in the editorial as well, looking at all the sort of aspects around consultations. Yeah, that was almost exactly the quote I was about to read out as well, because I think it, that's the one that jumps out as kind of just encapsulating general practice. And in the next paragraph as well, it says, you know, you just can't over protocolize general practice. And so that's perhaps what there's a bit of a panic that everything's got to have a protocol and be remote for X and remote for Y. There's always going to have to be an element of judgment that comes in. And that's the um, that's the nature of the, the job. OK, there's another editor I'm going to mention, but maybe I'll go to um, you next, Sam. You're going to mention a paper. What, what, what particularly is in this issue? What's stuck out for you? Yeah, one that stuck out for me and seems to have got some traction in the social media circles is the article by Katja Nicodemo and the team in Oxford looking at whether GP numbers were associated with a reduction in emergency hospital admissions. So, you know, we know from some of the research evidence that um, access to primary care can be associated with A&E attendance, but this group from Oxford looked at kind of the next step of, you know, what is the effect of the availability of GPs in the area on patients admitted as an emergency to hospital? And I think it's quite timely given the BJGP's recent seminar around health inequalities and reflecting on Julian Tudor Hart's work and the inverse care law, because the major finding from this study when they put together a, lot, a range of data sources from ONS statistics, hospital episode stats, COAF, and, and measures of deprivation that an increase in GPs was found to reduce emergency emissions in deprived areas, but didn't have any kind of association elsewhere. And you know, it, it sounds a bit obvious, but it's nice to have some you know, sort of strong quantitative research evidence behind the assertions that uh, Julian Tudor Hart made around you know, access to care for people in in deprived areas is so key and it and you know in achieving the NHS's aim to try and reduce emergency admissions where possible and safe, you know, GP numbers in these areas counts. Uh, and I think that was really good. And that seemed to get some traction with um GPs and people who are active on, on Twitter and the like. Yeah. I should um use take this opportunity to tell people the link if they want to watch the webinar, the health inequalities webinar, because it's still available. And if you go to uh, www.bjgplife.com forward slash webinar, it's there. Um, and there's also a link to um, uh, Professor Sir Michael Marmot's podcast. So the, um, the, he did, we, did, we had a, a shortened version of his video talking about Julian Tudor Hart at the start of the webinar, and he spoke really incredibly well about it. There's a slightly longer version as a podcast, which is also available. So um, anybody who's interested, that's a really good place to pick up a little bit more on that. Uh, any further thoughts on this paper, Tom? 
Yeah, I think really interesting, and it, it really dovetails nicely our recent webinar and discussing the 50 years of Julian Tudor Hart. Um, working in deprived area, I totally get <laughs> the kind of issues on this. Uh, look at the, the sort of literature. We know that in deprived areas, people get the multi-morbidity to 10 years younger, increasing demands, and it's quite stressful to work for clinicians in that area, but the funding doesn't match. So we know the sort of actual funding goes to actually the, the sort of richer areas and have more GP provision. So actually thinking about policy and practice, we really need to further push um, for primary care investment, particularly in deprived areas, because it will make an impact and potentially save money on emergency admissions. So I think this follows the narrative and supports what what we're sort of pushing for at a national level. Yeah, grand. So um, any research that's stuck out for you, Tom? What, what would you pick out from this issue? Uh, yeah, so I guess we talked about respiratory health, uh, and there was a really interesting paper that's flagged up from Stephen Bradley and colleagues uh, working in Leeds, looking at uh, chest X-ray and lung cancer. So the starting point, we know lung cancer, we don't do very well in the UK compared to other countries, and it's probably the one where we could make the most impact of potentially getting earlier diagnosis. There's a lot of patients diagnosed at stage four. So Leeds are doing, they've got a track record for some interesting work in this area, including patients being able to self-refer for chest X-rays. So this was a follow-up study utilizing that cohort data. So that was patients over 50, who met potential respiratory criteria, sort of um, unexplained coughing, hemoptysis, et cetera, were able to self-refer. So actually not even bypassing the GP, being able to actually request a chest X-ray themselves. Um, so in this study, they had uh, nearly 9,000 patients who requested their own chest X-ray over a five-year period. And that, that they then looked at the um, sensitivity and specificity of the chest X-ray. So, and uh, Stephen Seaver, who I know is doing some further work in this, and done a previous systematic review showing that chest X-ray has about an eighty percent sensitivity. Um, and this work uh, reinforces that actually the sensitivity in this was about seventy-five, so around seventy-five to eighty percent. So, as a take-home message, your chest X-ray might miss twenty percent of cancers. And they found in that population that the PPV was quite low, but it was higher for hemoptysis. So I guess the take-home clinical message is that chest X-ray, if it's negative, the patient's still symptomatic, really still think cancer could still be a possibility. If they've got unexplained hemoptysis, normal chest X-ray, still refer them. They probably need a CT scan. And I know in some areas, GPs can access CT, uh, straight to CT. Uh, and maybe, you know, going forward, we need more, more of a liberal attitude towards chest X-rays. Um, and access to CT scanning. Um, but I, I would say this is uh, this is not the primary care population. This is a patient's population self-referring. So yes, the PPV was low, but I would suspect it would be higher in the patients then selecting them to come in to see their GP and, and, and doing chest x-rays. Yeah, so um, both you gents are kind of done plenty of research into cancer and lung cancer around that area. What's your view on the self-referring chest x-ray side it seems to me given the pressures and on general practice and the requirement to if you're even coughing for a relatively short period the television adverts and the public health push mm -hmm. that open access to chest x-ray would seem like an obvious step i would totally agree i think chest x-ray is a safe test it's it's a small radiation dose but you know if you're an adult and you take informed consent I think that's uh, fine. I have no problem with patients self-referring for this. And I think, you know, it's, uh, from Leeds, they have shown that actually having a sustained campaign around lung cancer symptoms, they up the chest X-ray rate and they did show a higher, uh, getting us a sort of high percentage of diagnosed people with lung cancer. So I think actually liberalising the approach to potentially reasonably safe diagnostic tests is, is totally reasonable. 
don't know if you've got any comments, Sam, but I guess the obvious counterpoint to that, you know, that I'll answer, I'll argue against myself immediately, is the um, <laughs> is the fact that, as you've just highlighted, it doesn't pick up all cancers, of course, either. So, you know, there's still a requirement for a clinician to be involved or some access Absolutely. to further um, referral and investigations. Sam? Yeah, yeah. I mean, any, any open access x-ray would have to have... Sp- system built around it that you know it's reviewed by the clinician the reason the patient's going is is known so if it's a negative chest x-ray but they've got red flag symptoms then they still need to be followed up i think the only other thing to be aware of in this area because yes chest x-ray is a reasonable test but as tom says it misses one in five something that is coming is low dose ct screening for lung cancer in at-risk groups so there's been trials all over europe including here in the uk including in leeds i believe um, looking at offering low-dose screening CTs to smokers and high-risk patients. And actually, the the benefits of picking up more lung cancers early seems to be bearing fruit from these trials. So I would expect to keep an eye out for that in future, that there might be a, a CT scanner in the car park of ASDA or something offering people a, an opportunistic yeah. low-dose CT for lung cancer. Yeah, And not to focus too much on COVID, but COVID has had a clear impact on two-week rate referrals, but particularly for uh, lung and even before the pandemic, uh, lung cancer makes up 12 to 13% of all cancers, but only 2.8% of lung two-week weight. So already we're kind of under-referring, I think, for lung cancer, and that's been further amplified by the pandemic. So I actually think a more liberal approach to both chest x-ray and respiratory two-week referrals makes sense, particularly for lung cancer, where we could try and shift the dial somewhat, and it would make a big impact. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sam, have you got any other research you wanted to flag? Uh, not so, so much from the research section, but from our letters in the BJGP this month, we had a couple of letters relating to a PSA screenings trial for prostate cancer, so staying on the, on the cancer theme. So these two letters relate to what was called the CAP trial. So that was a UK-wide PSA screening trial led by Richard Martin, who is a clinical epidemiologist who actually trained as a GP but hasn't practised for a while. And basically what the CAP trial did was uh, recruit men and gave them a one-off PSA test and then followed them up for a long period of time to see if a one-off PSA was predictive of their risk of prostate cancer at all. And this was different to some of the really big uh, PSA screening trials in Europe and the States because those trials had a structured screening program where men were regularly tested for PSA, whereas the CAP trial was just a one-off for 400,000 UK men. And the CAP trial showed that one-off PSA didn't make any difference in terms of their risk of prostate cancer death, but it did pick up more prostate cancers. So the two letters, um, one was actually from the trial team. So they were responding to an article that we'd published earlier this year in the BJGP by Ashley Clift, uh, Carol Coupland and Julie Hippersley-Cox, because Clift and, and uh, colleagues had looked at whether the men who were in the control group in the CAP trial had a lot of PSA, opportunistic PSA screening going on, because at the moment, while we don't have a formal PSA screening program in the UK, men can still come to their GP who don't have symptoms of possible prostate cancer and talk about opportunistic screening. That is available. So the Clifton colleagues were trying to estimate whether there was a lot of those men in the control arm of the CAP trial and whether that would affect the trial outcomes. And the first letter from Richard Martin and the team published in our journal this month is sort of rebutting that a bit, pointing out um, some of the differences in the population that the Clifton colleagues' paper looked at, which is based on Q Research, which quite heavily 
skewed towards London and the East, um, whereas the CAP trial was UK-wide and had a lower proportion of men from London. So there were some distinctions made by the trial authors in reply to the article we'd published. Uh, and the second letter was from an F2 um, who was talking about uh, informed consent for opportunistic PSA screening and and what's available for GPs to help inform some of those decisions. And and I can tell um, Gavin, uh, Dr. Gordon, that um, some good places to start is there's two things. So there's a prostate cancer risk management program, which is a long established um, program that's funded centrally that um, tries to give as much as information about prostate cancer risk, and that includes discussions around opportunistic PSA screening. And linked to that is a really good, simple two-page leaflet that I give all my patients um, from Public Health England that talks about the risks and the benefits of having a PSA test as a screening test. Uh, so I'd encourage anyone who's not already using those resources to look there, first of all. Obviously, this all relates to the, the general ongoing sort of issue around prostate cancer detection and whether PSA is a good test or not. Uh, you know, I think it still has its limitations and we're constantly looking for other ways of trying to detect the, the more aggressive prostate cancers early without sort of over-detecting all the, the slow-growing tumours that aren't going to significantly impact on a man's health or the risk of death in the long term. Um, you know, there's things like MRI that are coming into the picture now and I think there's still some work to go there. But it was just it was nice to see a little bit of a exchange in the letters of the BJGP on this. Yeah. So um, we should um, we should get links off you, Sam, and we could put them into the show notes for the, the resources you use in case other... I'm sure people have got their own resources they use when they're having these discussions because they're... Um, they're always, you know, they are, they're not easy conversations, are they? And people, they're, they're still even now, people come in and rather, men come in and rather perhaps just expect it to be a routine part of screening. It just gets, you just tick the box and there's, but actually the conversation needs to be had is quite, it's quite nuanced with mm. um, men in this situation and it takes a little bit of time. So any good resources, we'll, we'll get a link in the show notes for those. Yeah. And um, I guess flag up also, we're, we're doing uh cancer webinar next our next webinar year oh yes well yes well, <laughs> well <laughs> you could feel, feel free to tell us tom i think yeah so we, we, that's on the 26th of uh, may wednesday at seven o'clock that's following our recent webinar on health inequalities where we'll be discussing chest x-ray paper we'll be looking at gut feeling which is a really sort of uh, interesting area in this uh, there's a lot of social media interest in that we've got feeling for cancer and other serious pathologies and use of ca125 for ovarian cancer so i think it'll be a really interesting discussion touching on some further uh, more of these areas we've touched on today yeah yeah that's yeah well, well well remembered tom and we haven't got the registration out just yet but it should be coming in the next um very soon so as soon as it's available we'll put it out through the usual channels and we hope people will sign up again uh, for that webinar okay what should we go on to next tom have you got anything else you want to raise i just want to flag up we talk about respiratory the the, the i think it's a really interesting initial sort of pilot study on using a smartphone algorithm in community acquired pneumonia now i guess Slight issues with this, it was a secondary care study in Western Australia. However, it's really, I thought, really innovative that they use a smartphone algorithm and it, it had far, um, used um, cough-recorded uh, segments from the patients that they submitted and then used a smartphone algorithm to analyse the cough and the sound of the cough, uh, along with some symptoms in the, in the smartphone al algorithm that took only about a minute for patients to use. Uh, and really showing that's potentially, uh, they're talking about uh, uh, 80 
uh, 86% negative predictive value. Um, you know, potentially, you know, so I think actually this needs probably more primary care trials, but this is direction of travel that patients may be starting to use some of these algorithms and maybe a diagnostic aid. So I, I think that's really interesting initial sort of pilot study. Yeah, the, um, I particularly picked that one out and mentioned it in the editor's briefing this month as well, because it just was slightly, I don't know, it just slightly blew my mind in terms of uh, maybe it's just a, an age-related phenomenon that you could, um, that somehow it hadn't quite occurred to me that actually you could record coughs and actually the characteristic of that yeah. cough would be sufficiently to really, and it was quite, the results were quite encouraging. Uh, yeah. to, to diagnose community acquired pneumonia and of course there's going to be lots of other things we have to add in and there'll still be an element of clinical judgment but as an extra it's you know that with the advent of mobile phones in everyone's pockets uh, and the ability to send that through across the um over the interwebs these days it was um i was really i, I was i thought it was a really um a really interesting kind of um really interesting i would say it's not even proof of concept i suppose it's certainly at that stage at the very least but it actually doesn't look like it'd be a million miles away being a usable um in very much usable in practice yeah okay anything else tom uh yeah i i, I touched on life and times uh, we can have a little discussion that it was a life and times article on on chronic pain from bless smith and leslie colvin uh, really discussion around, I think this is very timely because NICE has just released hot off the press their new chronic pain guidance. And really, this is an area which I think we all struggle as, as GPs. Uh, you know, we have patients coming into us with chronic pain. There's long waits to see a pain specialist. Sometimes we refer someone, they come back on loads of opioids. Um, and really, are we doing a disservice to this one in, uh, one in five people who have chronic pain in the UK and, and in, in Europe? Yeah, so the um, the article Blair Smith. Now Blair Smith is I need to get it right, but I think he's national lead in Scotland for chronic pain, um, and he's a, obviously he's a GP um, Blair. Um, yeah, national lead clinician for chronic pain in uh, in the Scottish government. So, uh, but his view and it's quite provocative. And certainly when um, compared to some of the headline news from the Nice guidance, is that um, you know we should really we shouldn't be just throwing all the drugs necessarily in the bin immediately, and we need a very much more individualised approach. And that the problem with the evidence is, of course, the nature of averaging it out is we might be missing out the subgroups who are benefiting in some way from the medication in some form or other. So he was kind of so it rather it rather highlights the complexity of this. It's a very readable article and very informative. It talks a little bit about the sign guidance as well, which is um, which they also comment on as having a very good um, algorithm um, to help guide approaches to prescribing as well i haven't had a chance to go and look at that myself yet um but it's certainly on my list and i think it's a really um, um it just it does rather point out as you've said already the challenges in chronic pain and the difficulties of uh, my, my underlying feeling is the problem is the evidence is all round poor and what we really need is given the number of people who have chronic pain is we need we either need options which are more easily available and psychological therapies was one of the ones mentioned by nice of course and we all know how difficult those can be to access, but we may also have to be more honest with our patients about what we what the limits of um, any interventions are for chronic pain. In many ways, it might maybe perhaps a little bit where we are, and we're still fumbling around trying to find stuff that works. Yeah, those those conversations are, are hard, aren't they? You yeah. want to offer someone something that might help, however poor the evidence is, you know, because these people do suffer for a long time and terribly and. Yeah, you know, we we hold a lot of that in primary care. So 
Mm. Yeah, it's a challenging area. And and yeah, those honest conversations are hard to have, but as you say, they're probably necessary. Yeah, they're they're very hard. And they're very and they take a lot of time and you know, you have to build a lot of trust and you know, it's all about that concept, you know, and it's not everybody's experienced a busy clinic and someone comes in with chronic pain and you've only got a few minutes. It that's you know, it's all it plays into all sorts of fundamental problems around continuity and length of consultation and how to have conversations with people about evidence. There's a, and your chronic pain feels like an almost, you kind of, it's just the absolute, just epitome of all those problems all rolled into, you know, it's really at the sharp end of actually mm -hmm. the enormous challenges. As I said, I'm sure we'll be covering on the college uh, e-learning the, the updated NICE guidelines. I mean, just a quick initial impression, it's really differentiating between what they call uh, secondary chronic pain. So that's related to specific conditions such as neuropathic pain, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, with a specific research evidence. So neuropathic pain, there is good evidence for amitriptyline, uh, duloxetine, et cetera, versus this chronic primary pain, where the primary pain, sorry, where there's no clear underlying condition where they're saying actually avoid opioids, avoid uh, gabapentinoids and actually go for the, the holistic treatment first off. So that's exercise program, psychological therapy, etc. as a first line rather than necessarily reaching for the prescription pad. Yeah. So I think it's actually thinking of differentiating the, the all these myriad of causes and working out a sort of uh, a treatment algorithm based on that. I, I think that plays into Blair's you know, kind of call for an individualized approach here yep. as well, more than anything. And that's one of my problems with you can talk about gabapentinoids. And of course, there's there's a regular ongoing anxiety about overprescribing of gabapentin and pregabalin because of its abuse potential and diversion and difficulties with that. But unfortunately, I've certainly seen CCGs also impose blanket policies of script reductions for those medications. And that doesn't play very well into the individualized approach either. And med people just do get their medication. And certainly there is a risk that people will get their medication just stopped or cut down without you know without that individualized approach and certainly we've had articles um we have a lot of articles in the past and i'm no doubt we'll have some in the future related to um de-prescribing of opioids as well which is an enormously challenging area in itself um which sort of ties into this chronic pain thing so gosh an awful lot to um an awful lot to cover there we won't we won't delve any further but i would certainly um it's a good little it's a nice little article and it will it will just it just complements incredibly nicely the the um the current um publication of new guidance from nice so i uh, would recommend that a any other papers we want to flag up i've got i've got several i would just kind of skirt over um uh, yeah i mean i was going to touch on one in life and times that you know has been another uh, double-edged sword of the pandemic i guess you'd say so um, this is from uh, apologies for the pronunciation here vasumathi sivara just just sing uh, gp partner in london who's written in about routine screening for domestic abuse so you know obviously with coronavirus with people being locked down and stuck at home people in certain situations have been suffering more but this has been discussed openly in the media and public and and she makes a point about shining a light on this and making sure people are aware of this and people are open and talking about this because it's a serious issue that has serious health implications. Uh, and primary care, we have a role to play here in terms of trying to identify our patients who are suffering with this and our victims of this and trying to support them in any way we can. Um, the, the article talks about routine screening um, and the fact that there is some evidence to suggest that it improves helping us identify victims of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Um, and it's obviously something that GPs are conscious of, but we do need to be thinking about it 
all the time and and it plays into the discussion earlier about remote consulting because it's it's harder to understand this problem and it's harder to pick it up if you're not seeing people face to face because email and phone calls can you know not give you the whole picture yeah and we had a we had a life and times article a bjgp life article i think near the start of the pandemic might or might have been it was certainly last year which you know that actually it was i think a gp gave a story where it was very clear that an abuser was listening into an online conversation as well which is always possible on the telephone but particularly in video consults maybe particularly harder. So there's all sorts of challenges in and around that. One, I have to say, this is not related to content in the BJGP this month, though I hope someone might consider reviewing it for us, is there was a book published just on the uh, 4th of March this year, actually quite a short book, which I just read, called um, In Control, um, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder, which is obviously a fairly forbidding title by Jane Monckton-Smith. Uh, one of, and a really insightful incredibly good book about um abusive relationships and offers strategies for interventions as well um so um i'm always hesitant to say because we know it's a cliche it's a must read um um so i've always trying we try and get that we try and whip that out of reviews whenever we can but i thought this was really exceptionally good based on her research over years around particularly abusive relationships which end up in homicide but you know there are all sorts of not every re abusive relationship goes down that path of course but even if it doesn't the um the book offered tremendous insight into where any agency could intervene and particularly as gps and in primary care that was really worthwhile so in control by jane monkton smith i'll put that in the show notes as well if people are interested in reading it and i'd highly recommend it um, we're getting on to the time. Anything? I'm going to just say, mention a couple of other articles. There was an editorial by um, about diagnosing children's cancer, actually. And I really liked this editorial. And of course, because I think mainly because we spent quite a bit of time working with them to get, the, to get it right in terms of the message. And they're very clear that we're working together with secondary care and working with pediatricians as primary care. And it's not, it, we were, wanted to be very certain we didn't get this, you know, GPs must do more kind of message came through. And I think there's some really interesting insights in that editorial into how, for what is a rare, a rare event in a GP's career with diagnosing a child with cancer, it may never happen. But some thoughts on actually how we can go about improving the odds that if it, the worst does come to it we've got a better chance of picking it up early and getting it to the um and getting it to the right people at the right time so um i'd flag that one i think there's some great life and times articles as well i particularly would flag um julia darko's article about vaccine hesitancy in um black and asian communities I thought that was a really nice piece as well um, and i thought there were lots of other really great articles i really kind of highly recommend it. anyone got any final once they were yeah, just I, I really liked um, Emma Ladd's article, which is ST4 from Oxford. Uh, she wrote in Lifetimes about despite coronavirus, general practice is still the best job in the world. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but actually I really liked her narrative style here, just reflecting on where GPs are rarely acute lifesavers, but we listen to people, we bear witness to their lives. I think actually it's really important actually to hold on, you know, throughout this pandemic, hold on to what makes general practice a great job. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to stop it there because that's obviously a perfect note to end on. Sam, Tom, thank you very much. We'll speak to you next time. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. 
Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thanks again.